Book One, Chapter Two, of On the Education of an Orator, by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But the time has come for the boy to grow up, little by little, to leave the nursery and tackle his studies in good earnest. This, therefore, is the place to discuss the question as to whether it is better to have him educated privately at home or hand him over to some large school and those whom I may call public instructors. The latter course has, I know, won the approval of most eminent authorities and of those who have formed the national character of the most famous states. It would, however, be folly to shut our eyes to the fact that there are some who disagree with this preference for public education owing to a certain prejudice in favor of private tuition. These persons seem to be guided in the main by two principles. In the interests of morality, they would avoid the society of a number of human beings at an age that is specially liable to acquire serious faults. I only wish I could deny the truth of the view that such education has often been the cause of the most discreditable actions. Secondly, they hold that whoever is to be the boy's teacher, he will devote his time more generously to one pupil than if he has to divide it among several. The first reason certainly deserves serious consideration. If it were proved that schools, while advantageous to study, are prejudicial to morality, I should give my vote for virtuous living in preference to even supreme excellence of speaking. But in my opinion, the two are inseparable. I hold that no one can be a true orator unless he is also a good man, and even if he could be, I would not have it so. I will therefore deal with this point first. It is held that schools corrupt the morals. It is true that this is sometimes the case. But morals may be corrupted at home as well. There are numerous instances of both, as there are also of the preservation of a good reputation under either circumstance. The nature of the individual boy and the care devoted to his education make all the difference. Given a natural bent toward evil or negligence in developing and watching over modest behavior in early years, privacy will provide equal opportunity for sin. The teacher employed at home may be of bad character, and there is just as much danger in associating with bad slaves as there is with immodest companions of good birth. On the other hand, if the natural bent be towards virtue, and parents are not afflicted with a blind and torpid indifference, it is possible to choose a teacher of the highest character, and those who are wise will make this their first object, to adopt a method of education of the strictest kind, and at the same time to attach some respectable man or faithful freedman to their son as his friend and guardian, that his unfailing companionship may improve the character even of those who gave rise to apprehension. Yet, how easy were the remedy for such fears! 
would that we did not too often ruin our children's character ourselves we spoil them from the cradle that soft upbringing which we call kindness saps all the sinews both of mind and body if the child crawls on purple what will he not desire when he comes to manhood before he can talk he can distinguish scarlet and cries for the very best brand of purple we train their palates before we teach their lips to speak they grow up in litters if they set foot to earth they are supported by the hands of attendants on either side we rejoice if they say something over free and words which we should not tolerate from the lips even of an alexandrian page are greeted with laughter and a kiss we have no right to be surprised it was we that taught them they hear us use such words they see our mistresses and minions every dinner-party is loud with foul songs and things are presented to their eyes of which we should blush to speak hence springs habit and habit in time becomes second nature the poor children learn these things before they know them to be wrong they become luxurious and effeminate and far from acquiring such vices at schools introduce them themselves i now turn to the objection that one master can give more attention to one pupil in the first place there is nothing to prevent the principle of one teacher one boy being combined with school education and even if such a combination should prove impossible i should still prefer the broad daylight of a respectable school to the solitude and obscurity of a private education for all the best teachers pride themselves on having a large number of pupils and think themselves worthy of a bigger audience on the other hand in the case of inferior teachers a consciousness of their own defects not seldom reconciles them to being attached to a single pupil and playing the part for it amounts to little more of a mere pedagogus but let us assume that influence money or friendship succeed in securing a paragon of learning to teach the boy at home will he be able to devote the whole day to one pupil or can we demand such continuous attention on the part of the learner the mind is as easily tired as the eye if given no relaxation moreover by far the larger proportion of the learner's time ought to be devoted to private study the teacher does not stand over him while he is writing or thinking or learning by heart while he is so occupied the intervention of any one be he who he may is a hindrance further not all reading requires to be first read aloud or interpreted by a master if it did how would the boy ever become acquainted with all the authors required of him a small time only is required to give purpose and direction to the day's work and consequently individual instruction can be given to more than one pupil there are moreover a large number of subjects in which it is desirable that instruction should be given to all the pupils simultaneously i say nothing of the analysis and declamations of the professors of rhetoric 
In such cases, there's no limits to the number of the audience, as each individual pupil will in any case receive full value. The voice of a lecturer is not like a dinner, which will only suffice for a limited number. It is like the sun, which distributes the same quantity of light and heat to all of us. So, too, with the teacher of literature. Whether he speak of style, or expound difficult passages, explain stories, or paraphrase poems, every one who hears him will profit by his teaching. But, it will be urged, a large class is unsuitable for the correction of faults or for explanation. It may be inconvenient, one cannot hope for absolute perfection, but I shall shortly contrast the inconvenience with the obvious advantages. Still, I do not wish a boy to be sent where he will be neglected. But a good teacher will not burden himself with a larger number of pupils than he can manage, and it is further of the very first importance that he should be on friendly and intimate terms with us, and make his teaching not a duty, but a labor of love. Then there will never be any question of being swamped by the number of our fellow learners. Moreover, any teacher who has the least tincture of literary culture will devote special attention to any boy who shows signs of industry and talent, for such a pupil will redound to his own credit. But even if large schools are to be avoided, a proposition from which I must descend if the size be due to the excellence of the teacher, it does not follow that all schools are to be avoided. It is one thing to avoid them, another to select the best. Having refuted these objections, let me now explain my own views. It is above all things necessary that our future orator, who will have to live in the utmost publicity and in the broad daylight of public life, should become accustomed from his childhood to move in society without fear, and habituated to a life far removed from that of the pale student, the solitary and recluse. His mind requires constant stimulus and excitement, whereas retirement, such as has just been mentioned, induces languor, and the mind becomes mildewed, like things that are left in the dark, or else flies to the opposite extreme, and becomes puffed up with empty conceit. For he who has no standard of comparison by which to judge his own powers will necessarily rate them too high. Again, when the fruits of his study have to be displayed to the public gaze, our recluse is blinded by the sun's glare and finds everything new and unfamiliar, for though he has learned what is required to be done in public, his learning is but the theory of a hermit. I say nothing of friendships, which endure unbroken to old age, having acquired the binding force of a sacred duty, for initiation in the same studies has all the sanctity of initiation in the same mysteries of religion. And where shall he acquire that instinct which we call common feeling, if he secludes himself from that intercourse which is natural 
not merely to mankind, but even to dumb animals. Further, at home he can only learn what is taught to himself, while at school he will learn what is taught to others as well. He will hear many merits praised and many faults corrected every day. He will derive equal profit from hearing the indolence of a comrade rebuked or his industry commended. Such praise will incite him to emulation. He will think it a disgrace to be outdone by his contemporaries, and a distinction to surpass his seniors. All such incentives provide a valuable stimulus, and though ambition may be a fault in itself, it is often the mother of virtues. I remember that my own masters had a practice which was not without advantages. Having distributed the boys in classes, they made the order in which they were to speak depend on their ability, so that the boy who had made most progress in his studies had the privilege of declaiming first. The performances on these occasions were criticized. To win commendation was a tremendous honor, but the prize most eagerly coveted was to be the leader of the class. Such a position was not permanent. Once a month, the defeated competitors were given a fresh opportunity of competing for the prize. Consequently, success did not lead the victor to relax his efforts, while the vexation caused by defeat served as an incentive to wipe out the disgrace. I will venture to assert that to the best of my memory, this practice did more to kindle our oratorical ambitions than all the exhortations of our instructors, the watchfulness of our pedagogi, and the prayers of our parents. Further, while emulation promotes progress in the more advanced pupils, beginners, who are still of tender years, derive greater pleasure from imitating their comrades than their masters, just because it is easier. For children, still in the elementary stages of education, can scarce dare hope to reach that complete eloquence which they understand to be their goal. Their ambition will not soar so high, but they will imitate the vine which has to grasp the lower branches of the tree on which it is trained, before it can reach the topmost boughs. So true is this, that it is the master's duty as well, if he is engaged on the task of training unformed minds, and prefers practical utility to a more ambitious program, not to burden his pupils at once with tasks to which their strength is unequal, but to curb his energies and refrain from talking over the heads of his audience. Vessels with narrow mouths will not receive liquids if too much be poured into them at a time but are easily filled if the liquid is admitted in a gentle stream, or, it may be, drop by drop. Similarly, you must consider how much a child's mind is capable of receiving. The things which are beyond their grasp will not enter their minds, which have not opened out sufficiently to take them in. It is a good thing, therefore, that a boy should have companions whom he will desire first to imitate, and then to surpass. Thus he will be led to aspire to higher achievement. I would add 
that the instructors themselves cannot develop the same intelligence and energy before a single listener as they can when inspired by the presence of a numerous audience. For eloquence depends in the main on the state of the mind, which must be moved, conceive images, and adapt itself to suit the nature of the subject which is the theme of speech. Further, the loftier and the more elevated the mind, the more powerful will be the forces which move it. Consequently, praise gives it growth and effort increase, and the thought that it is doing something great fills it with joy. The duty of stooping to expand that power of speaking which has been acquired at the cost of such effort upon an audience of one gives rise to a silent feeling of disdain, and the teacher is ashamed to raise his voice above the ordinary conversational level. Imagine the air of a declaimer, or the voice of an orator, his gait, his deliver, the movements of his body, the fatigue of his exertions, all for the sake of one listener. Would he not seem little less than a lunatic? No, there would be no such thing as eloquence if we spoke only with one person at a time. End of chapter 2